Hello and welcome to the latest Science of Sport podcast. I'm your host Matt Solomon and today I'm delighted to be joined by Theo Pickles. So Theo has worked in elite sport for over 15 years in a wide variety of different countries and different sports. At the moment he works with the Dutch Olympic team where he's the athletic performance manager of the Orange Lions Basketball Academy. But previous to that he's worked for a number of years with both the elite swimming and rowing teams which of course gives him great knowledge and experience as to how you can minimize the interference effect with sports that need both strength and endurance. So without further ado, it's time to welcome Theo onto the show. So Theo, welcome to the Science of Sport podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Matt. It's been a long time listening and uh, I'm uh, excited to be able to contribute as well. Thank you very much, mate. So can you give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what you've been up to until now? So I'm a, an Australian strength conditioning coach uh, with over 15 years of experience now. Uh, I've been working initially in Australia with uh, para-athletics, uh, with rugby union, rugby league. Uh, then I moved over to uh, uh, Bangladesh where I was working with the cricket team for, for two years. Uh, then on to the UK, dabbled in a few bits and pieces over there. Uh, then through to Belgium with a little bit of soccer, uh, and then finally to the Netherlands where I worked with uh, swimming, equestrian, ice hockey, trampoline, rowing, and swimming. And for the last nine years, I've been exclusively with the uh, rowing, the elite rowing and swimming programs based in Amsterdam. Uh, and just recently this year, I've been uh, moved over to the basketball program where I am the performance manager. Uh, so I do the roles of strength conditioning and embedded sports science, but also pulling together the medical team and the paramedical team to uh, to try and make a coherent program. Mate, that's uh, absolutely tons of experience. And we're going to steal some knowledge today about the, the rowing and swimming because obviously they are, generally speaking, quite endurance-based sports. They love to, to have volume, loads and loads of uh, volume work throughout the week. Um, and looking at the interference effect of uh, potentially some gym work and all of that volume all in one go. Um, but uh, very quickly as well, you, you do some stuff for the ASCA? That's right. I'm also a course presenter for the ASCA. So we present courses once a year, level one, level two courses, uh, here in Amsterdam, uh, which are great courses, weekend courses, as level tours over two weekends. Um, so this also one of the uh, leading professional accreditation organisations uh, in strength conditioning around the world. The only one that's properly international. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, courses available here in Europe, and uh, we have our next courses coming up in September. So if anyone wants to jump on the website and sign up for that, uh, they're very welcome. We'd love to have you along. Perfect, perfect. Decent little plug there as well. I did that one exactly. um, a couple of years ago. I still need to finish it, but uh, I've emailed about it. So, yeah, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll discuss really that. As long as you email, it's all good. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> um, but interference effect. So in terms of, of what that is, can you explain uh, what it is and why it's important for coaches to, to consider it? So the interference effect is the idea that different training modalities, when positions too close to one another will potentially blunt the adaptation that you get from uh, your previous training session or potentially the fatigue that you accrued in an earlier training session will also uh, affect 
the quality of the upcoming training session and therefore your adaptation to that training session. So that, that's it in a nutshell. Cool. So why is that then important? Because obviously you, you kind of want the adaptations to stick, but over a longer period of time, does it, does it really matter? Or is it kind of one of those things that coaches are like, oh, we need to do it because it seems important? So I, certainly most coaches are aware that it's an important problem. And if anyone who works in the what we might call the concurrent sports, and rowing is a really good example of a current sport where high levels of strength are required, as are high levels of aerobic fitness. So uh, an elite rower will have a VO2 max of 95 plus uh, mils per kilogram, um, and they will be expected to squat about two times body weight as well. So uh, extremely fit and extremely strong. Uh, the question then is, how do you get both of these two seemingly opposite modalities uh, or these two opposite um, fitness qualities into the same person. Um, so it's, call it, say it's absolutely an important factor uh, and coaches really need to consider how their microcycle is constructed over the week to, uh, to make sure that they maximize the effect of their training sessions. So, so when we then take that week, right? So you're, you're talking about potentially eight to 10 training sessions, maybe even 11, 12 for like the, the top, top athletes. You've got a lot of training. You've got a lot of volume. Um, how is a week going to look just in terms of all of those blocks that need to be fitted in, right? Like what just needs to go on on the days? Um, in a minute, we're going to attack how to position those in the right places. Like what, what are they doing to start with? So first thing is they're doing, so if we take rowing as the probably the easy one, uh, they're doing an awful lot of rowing. <laughs> yeah. So they, they are definitely in the boat at least once a day, maybe twice, maybe three times. Three times? Maybe, sometimes. Um, or they'll have often a, an extra aerobic session perhaps on the bike, or to give the back a rest, for example, that uh, they're training up to three times a day, uh, in the aerobic kind of area. Um, and that comes from the data that suggests that your VO2 max contributes about 80% of your success in rowing. So it's extremely important that they are very aerobically fit. Uh, so they'll probably have three heavy aerobic sessions a week where they're sort of in that 80% heart rate zone uh, and staying up there for most of the session. And then uh, we're looking for two to three strength sessions a week on top of that. Uh, we also need to get in some interval work. Uh, closer as we approach the, uh, the season, there'll be uh, often starts and uh, sprints um, and interval work as well. So they, they need to touch on a whole bunch of different things to uh, make sure that they're fit enough to finish the race. And when we're looking at that interference effect, right, you've, you've mentioned a few different types of training, but what are the things that are going to interfere with each other? Because obviously, when we're putting that all together, we want to position things optimally. So what are the things which are going to clash and which things can you puzzle together a little bit better? Right. So the, the biggest clash is long aerobic conditioning, long, slow work combined with strength training. So the, uh, there was certainly a, a culture when I first came in to the program of doing going for a row, maybe an hour and a half, uh, 
and then going straight into the gym after that. And that's a big uh, no-no. We, that's, that's a big no-no. Not so much that the strength session is uh, you have a blunting the adaptation effect from the aerobic session, but the quality of the strength session is going to be poor. Yeah. So this is also a kind of interference phase, the interference of fatigue on the next session. Um, but generally, if you can think of your training in themes, so strength training is a highly neural kind of training um, as opposed to an energy system kind of training. So fitting all of the neural training together on one day and all of the aerobic training together on another day will give you better results than if you try to do a little bit of everything in one day. Okay, and wh why does that then happen? Why is it then physiologically important to split those things up right so effectively what you're doing is giving the body a signal as to what it should adapt to uh in fact you're asking the dna to replicate certain parts of your physiology um so as that dna starts to replicate a new and different signal is given that dna replication is going to be uh stopped or slowed while the newer signal is uh, is adapted to instead so now you have a little bit of both happening rather than as much as you could have of one of the things okay so you're kind of like isolating one thing to really push the boundaries of it and then that instead of doing two things kind of okay exactly there is a, a saying that I, that I always like out of strength conditioning which is mixed training produces mixed results <laughs> yeah Cool. So when when we're looking at those uh, those training sessions next to each other, right? You're gonna you said to put, put for example neural work with neural work. So what does a morning and then an afternoon session look like on a neural day? So for example, we might look at uh, doing starts and intervals on on your neural day, and following that up with a strength session in the afternoon. Again, giving the athlete enough time to recover from their morning session and there's so maybe six hours between sessions is sort of the number that's thrown around as being kind of the minimum you would like to get between sessions uh and then doing your strength session and then that's the end of your day so with the, with those six hours that involves uh recovery active recovery eating food any other bits and pieces in there food is number one refueling is is important uh at our rowing facility we actually had a sleeping room for them with the bunk beds so where uh, the athletes would go have a snooze if they wanted to um staff as well we could, uh i never saw a staff member ah. but uh, <laughs> i thought about it every now and then sure. <laughs> i can imagine me sorry i was i was interrupting snooze between sessions oh, mate i'm it's definitely all over that if i didn't get caught i'd be all over it <laughs> just locked the door right <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, sorry. So the, they're going to go food, snoozing. What's uh, any any other bits and pieces in there? Yeah, maybe, maybe some active recovery. Um, we saw also that uh, cool bath bathing was helpful after anything where the energy systems were challenged. So this could be a whole other podcast on recovery modalities uh, because we also were our evidence was also clear that. Uh, bathing, cold bathing after strength training uh, produce negative results. And I think that's also been backed up by the research as well, that it should be avoided. Your body needs to go through that inflammation process that happens after strength training. But again, a whole, whole different podcast there on recoveries. Um, 
so that that was the primary thing. The, the other important thing we did was to have that strength session at the end of the day because only we get mostly two strength sessions in a week. So it was the, the training we did the least. That meant that we wanted it to be the stimulus they went to sleep on. So now all they had to do after that session is go home, eat, and go to bed. And then they've sort of got a whole 12 hours now to adapt to that session before That's the next with, stimulus is thrown at them. With, with the thought that if you have no session afterwards, then you're not going to get any blunting of responses. Then it's kind of full focus on getting stronger, loads of time to recover for that, or loads of time for them at exactly. least. Exactly. Um, and then they can get the full adaptation from, from that strength training. Exactly, or at least as much as you can sort of get out of 12 hours. Google it takes about 48 hours to get full adaptation, maybe a bit longer for some people. Uh, and of course, they have another training session the next morning. Uh, and what we would generally do on that following morning is to have a light aerobic session, so more of a recovery session, so maybe at 60 to 70% heart rate max for an hour so it's a much lighter session and it was more about blowing the stiffness out from the weight session and when you when you look at that over a couple of days right so you start to to puzzle this together in a week so you've got let's say um a fairly hefty morning session on starts for example then you've got your gym session you've got a, a lighter aerobic session are you then going heavy aerobic or is that just a light day uh, in its entirety yeah, it would be a lighter day. So that would be a moderate aerobic session in the afternoon. The following morning would be the would probably the big aerobic session of the week or one of the biggest aerobic sessions of the week. So, again, the idea is to get those aerobic sessions as far away as possible from those strength sessions. Cool. So when you're, when you're puzzling that together, could you take us through the rest of that week? So let's say we sure. started on Monday with the, with the, uh, with the sprints and the, the gym session, but what would it look like? moving through to Sunday evening. Yeah. So if, if we took a full Monday, so I previously talked about sprints and starts in context of what are you doing on strength training day? If we put the whole week together from Monday through to Sunday, Monday morning, easy row. You've had the day off before on Sunday. So just get back into rowing again, maybe an hour and a half, nothing too, uh, too intense, maybe 70% heart rate max. Um, then, into the gym in the afternoon, uh, big gym session, maybe an hour and a half, uh, using um, primarily focused on lifting heavy weights. Uh, so looking for the fast majority of the season, they're focused on their, uh, their absolute strength kind of zone. Uh, Tuesday morning will be light aerobic, blow out the stiffness, moderate aerobic Tuesday afternoon, heavy aerobic. Uh, Wednesday morning, another moderate aerobic Wednesday afternoon. Thursday morning starts, sprints, high-intensity intervals. Strength again in the afternoon on Thursday afternoon. Friday is an easy row in the morning. Friday afternoon is going to be a moderate row. Saturday is going to be a heavy aerobic row in the morning. And then the rest of Saturday off and Sunday off. So it's a, it's a pretty packed schedule. There's a, there's a lot it's going a, on in there. Um, certainly is. And when you, when you look at those gym sessions, um, obviously you said uh, there's, there's absolute strength, so there's, there's lifting pretty heavy weights. Um, how do you then start to program with the idea that lifting weights 
although integral for the sport, yeah, it's not contributing that eighty percent which you which you talked about earlier for aerobic performance. How do you start to program to make sure that these things aren't going to have the huge impact on the aerobic performance within the gym session? Right. So the the evidence suggests that while aerobic uh, training has a large effect on strength adaptations, is not the case the other way around. So obviously a very strength-focused athlete is not very aerobically fit, but that's because they spend all their time strength training and they don't do any aerobic training because that eats into their strength games. Um, however, doing having just two sessions a week for a rower sort of reflects that 80% contribution from the uh, aerobic system, maybe 10% from strength and 10% from technique, perhaps. I, I'm not exactly sure how the other 20% get split up, but uh, smaller contributions. Uh, based on that, um, because we've only got those two sessions in a week, we're reflecting the overall contribution or an importance of strength, uh, which is less. So that's the um, that, that's where we kind of look at that. So we're also keeping the sessions themselves, although they're relatively long, they have quite a lot of rest periods. Uh, the repetitions are low. And it was really interesting when I first came into rowing, the tradition was a lot of circuit training. Okay. And my question to them was, why are we doing circuit training? Um, is the 200Ks of a rowing a week not enough? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the aerobic bucket and the energy system bucket is completely full and over, possibly overflowing. Which bucket is empty? And the answer is the strength bucket is empty. So we made a big change, uh, and often when rowers came into our elite program, they were very excited to see on their program that they never had more than six repetitions on their program, and that was uh, often a relief coming from club training where they would have 50 or 100 or just straight-out circuits for, for half an hour. So uh, it was a big change. And then when you're, when you're looking to uh, like measure those things in the gym, what are the, what are the key lifts or what are the key factors which you think are important for rowers then to uh to improve their strength performance which is specific to the sport so if, if you look at what rowing is it's uh, effectively a sort of seated triple extension mm -hmm. uh most people would then think oh obviously leg press is the right one which it can be uh but we tend to graduate uh gravitate towards squats uh primarily uh, and uh, and deadlifting, so those are our two big ones. We close to season we'd focus on some uh, Olympic derivatives, maybe some cleans. Uh, the issue for rowers we found was that they are really tall, and they're really not made to do Olympic weightlifting. So we had a few that were competent power cleaners, and the rest we just looked at power shrugs, uh, clean pulls. Um, that kind of thing, a few high pulls, although that's not my favorite exercise, uh, but a lot of it done on squats. If we were using squats, we also put the gym aware on them and would actually have them lifting in, uh, in specific training zones. So a lot of time spent in the absolute velocity zones, so that's sort of 0 0.3 meters per second to 0 0.5 meters per second off the top of my head. Um, and then we'd also move into sort of heavy power as well. It's like, close to the season just to take some load off them as well and to freshen them up 
Nice. And in terms of using velocity-based training, is there any other little bits and pieces there that you uh, you can share with us? You, for example, looking at uh, fatigue to make sure that they weren't dropping off too much in the sets. I can imagine that's important when a lot of aerobic performance needs to happen the next day and they're getting tired from the, the gym sessions. Is that something you're looking at or is it just, uh, just for the speed zones? Yeah, so my the way that I've started looking at velocity-based training is by simply using the speed zones, you're also, the athlete is also auto-regulating according to how tired they are. So they know that they're going to use a certain weight is going to get them into the right speed zone for the right number of weight, uh, for the right number of repetitions. However, if they're tired, they won't hit the speeds they're expecting to, and they might get two reps in the zone and the other three are outside of the zone. And so our instruction was always, if you miss your training zone by two reps, so you get one chance to make it up again, if you can't hit it two in a row, rack the bar, and that's the end of that set. Adjust your weight and go on the next set. So it was a really simple way of auto-regulating. Uh, it meant that they were lifting appropriately uh, for how tired they were on the day and also whatever their 1RM was, their estimated 1RM was on that day without ever actually having to measure it. I mean, that's, uh, that can be super useful when the day before they've been absolutely gassed, right? So you mentioned that Wednesday session, which sounds pretty horrible. Um, if they're lifting on the Thursday, then uh, yeah, I can imagine that's really useful for making sure that you're yeah, not destroying them at least with previously measured rep max scores and all of a sudden actually they can't hit that anymore. Exactly. You know, and I've always been critical of the first thing that I noticed when I came to the rowing program, we, we did all the, how we used to do it. Every six weeks we'd do a bunch of strength tests and we would, I would use that to program and I was always wrong. Yeah. On paper I was right, but like in reality I was wrong and it's just because they were tight. And I was, I found that I was neither allowing for adaptation to happen mm-hmm. or taking, or not, you, there's no way to know when that adaptation is going to happen. You know, we all know anyone who's trained knows that your improvement is not linear. You can't just say, I will get better by 2% a week. Uh, you know, you get better by 1% and then you get worse by half a percent and then you get better by 3% and then, you, you know, it's all over the place. Yeah. Um, so this was a, a really good way of just lifting the right weights. And also we went to the lighter weights and we went to the competition preparation phases. We were able to really uh, take strip the weight off and ask them to lift at 30%. And if you ask a rower who's used to squatting 150, 180 kilograms to squat at 60 kilograms, they're like, this is not a training session. I don't want to do it. But if you can say to them, move that 60 kilograms faster than you've ever moved it before and give them real-time feedback on that, suddenly that 60 kilos becomes a challenge for them. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine, uh, in fact, I don't have to imagine because I've used similar similar things myself and it's, it's really, really motivational and really useful for getting by into that, that speed session where, in actual fact, it doesn't feel tiring, um, which is the entire goal of the session. But when people want to feel tired, then it's a, it's a difficult sell sometimes. So uh, exactly. that's, a, that's an easier way, way to sell that. But um, in terms of then the interference effect when it comes to younger athletes, is, is it still important? So let's take, for example, a 14, 15, 16-year-old who uh, is training with a, a club, reasonable standard, whatever. Um, should, should the coaches or the athletes then be looking to, to reduce that interference effect? Or is this something that's more 
yeah, more for elite athletes. But I think it's something that needs to be considered mostly for elite athletes. Uh, the younger you get, and therefore the less fit you get, uh, doing something will always make you fitter. Uh, on top of that, because most junior athletes are probably, particularly if they're at club level and not in a, in a talent program, if they're at club level, they're probably only training at the most once a day and probably less than that. Therefore, there's enough time to adapt. And your training intensity probably isn't high enough to elicit the kinds of levels of fatigue that an elite athlete is experiencing. They're not lifting heavy enough and they're not rowing hard enough. Uh, one of the things that we also saw with our rowers moving from club and talent programs into the elite program was that their rowing technique simply wasn't good enough to elicit the aerobic improvements we were looking for. We had to put them onto a bike to get the aerobic improvements and teach them how to row. Just yeah. They just simply couldn't get the intensity up in the boat because there was too many other problems that you have to solve, too many coordination problems you have to solve before you can get your intensity high enough. So that's probably an entire different podcast as well on youth development, but um, super interesting. And if there are coaches or athletes from other sports listening as well, um, do you think it's important in other sports? I mean, you listed loads of different things that you've worked in previously. Are there, are there other sports that can learn from this? Um, obviously with Rowan being a fairly extreme example of, of what happens, but um, things like team sports, for example, uh, you mentioned uh, football, soccer earlier. Um, are these sports also going to need to uh, consider these kind of uh, these split sessions or uh, the, the tips and tricks you've given earlier? Yeah, I think I, absolutely. Let's, let's say we're working with an elite football program, for example. Uh, it's really important for coaches to be aware that strength training in the short term negatively affects coordination. It changes how you move in, in the short term, although there are long-term benefits. Uh, so if you were going to teach a new skill straight after a strength session would be a bad time. If you're often in club situations, time is restricted. You say, right, I want to get one group on the field, one group in the gym, and then swap them over, for example. Uh, I think it's really important to be aware of what kind of session you're going to do on the field with them. So I would look to be doing speed agility work with them. That way, again, we're trying to theming that neural idea along with the strength session. So let's say we have two or three strength sessions a week. That's when I would put my speed agility stuff with one group, the strength session with the other group, and swap them over. I think that would be a better idea than, for example, doing their aerobic conditioning and their, their strength training on the same afternoon, for example. Uh, you also need to think then about the quality of team play as well. You know, what kind of sessions are you going to do in terms of are going to be running full pitch, uh, simul match simulation training drills, or are we going to be doing close drills? How much of a team am I going to get on my athlete? When I'm going to put it, how does that affect safety and injury potential as well? Um, for example, if I've gone smash my hamstrings with a bunch of Nordics because as a strength conditioning coach, I heard that was a good thing to prevent uh, hamstring curls. And then they go and do a bunch of sprints and you know, play a game of soccer straight afterwards. That's going to be a problem as well. And there's maybe going to be a high risk of injury while the hamstrings are now fatigued and recovering from the, those three sets of six Nordics you did, for example. 
Yeah, and Nordics are horrible as well. That's, that's a, again, a different podcast. They're but, um, yeah, not recommended for the, the amply proportioned human beings out there. Um, <laughs> I can imagine your rowers don't like it. But Theo, mate, massive thanks for, for your time and effort. I think that's, uh, that's some superb information and some really interesting stuff that we've not covered before. So uh, massive thank you. And uh, yeah, I look forward to speaking again soon. Yeah, absolute pleasure, mate. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much, buddy. Cheers. Cool. Cheers, mate. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks to Theo for all of his hard work in today's podcast. I really appreciate it, and I'm sure you do at home too. Before you leave, I want to point you in the direction of our Coach Academy. Now, the Coach Academy is a series of lectures broken down to bite-sized chunks. So if you've enjoyed today's podcast and you want to get some more information on how you can program for sport performance, get yourself in there using the link in the show notes completely for free for seven days. So click that link in just a few seconds' time. And of course, if you have enjoyed today's podcast, it'd be brilliant if you can give it a like and a share and share it with any coach, athlete, friend or colleague that you think could really benefit from this. That means that we can keep bringing you the best possible guests and the best possible content. And that's it. Once again, a massive thanks from me. I'm Matt Solomon for Science of Sport and I'll speak to you next week.